it was maybe, maybe the happiest I've ever been. Hold my brand new baby boy. You couldn't tell me nothing. Joy, 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 joy. And I'm thinking, I have a little girl. And now I have this baby boy. Both of them perfect, created in love. Everything I've always wanted come true. I weep with happiness, with gratitude. And this bliss, it followed a few moments later by the most horrifying time in my life. We realize that something is wrong. And uh, I can't tell you that story right now. <laughs> Not right ever. I can't. I will tell you that a few days later, exhausted, spent, terrified for my little man. I'm leaving the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. Leaving for a moment to go home to hug my baby girl, maybe shower, eat something before returning to the hospital. My father's at my house for some reason. I don't know why it's all a fog to me. What I do recall is that he says, son, I know we don't share the same beliefs, but I want you to know that I'm praying Jesus. I'm praying on Jesus for you both. And I'm praying on Jesus for that baby. My father and I, we don't share the same beliefs, but I, I can't recall telling him, pops, if you have any prayer, any God, any faith, any magic, any healing, any power that you can send to my little boy right now, whatever you have to do, do that. Do that. And he does bows his head to his God right there and I bow my head too to a force I had long ago stopped believing in. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists at the neonatal intensive care unit either. Crystals, magic lamps, amulets, give me all of it. I don't care. Just help my baby boy. Help him. And a few weeks later, pushing that stroller out of that place with that boy, I, I thought I was happy before. And Pops, he asked me later, isn't his God good? And I don't know who did what. The prayers, the gods, the nurses, the doctors, the faith, the angels. I don't know who let us depart from that place as if escaping a tomb. I do not know. And I do not care. Today. On Snap Judgment, we proudly present the Don't Look Back special. My name is from Washington. You don't know what you don't know when you're listening to Snap Judgment.
Now, every year right around this time, we do a look back special. But this year, we're changing up the soup and featuring amazing supernatural stories from our sister show, Spooked. And our first story, it does have a tiny bit of squeamishness, but not to worry, I promise. Because we get to meet Bill. And Bill's headed home from college for the holidays, driving to see his high school sweetheart. But he's got to make it through the Appalachian Mountains first. Snap Judgment. It's a kind of a rainy, misty Sunday morning. I'm driving through an area that uh, there are trees on the left, trees on the right, and I'm going down a hill. And it kind of swerves back and forth, back and forth, you know, like a snake. But my father used to say, you know, going around these curves, we can almost look out the car window and see the back of the car. But, uh, you know, I was going to see my girlfriend. So it's all worth it. The road makes a big swing to the left right there. And on the right-hand side is this big muddy gully. And when I tried to make that curve into the left, I slid off the road into the gully. But I gunned the motor trying to get out of the ditch and back on the road like you do. And when the tires were spinning really fast and they caught, I sped up. And when I got on the road, I started to slide diagonally across the road over this cliff. And I realized at one point there, I'm not going to stop. It's the scar's not going to stop. And then once I left the road and started going down that crevice, I don't remember that part. The next thing I knew, the car was right side up down at the bottom of that hill, sitting in a little creek bed, which had some water in it because it had been raining. And there I was, sitting in the car, still inside. And uh, I looked down and I had little pieces of broken glass in my arms. And uh, it had just started to bleed. So I figured, well, I haven't been here very long. You know, I, I just blacked out there for a second as I came down and and here I am. So I got out of the car, and this is the strangest thing. I locked it and then realized this car was a total loss.
windows were all broken. The engine was almost out. It, it had been dislodged. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to have to get out of here and, and, and get some help. And what am I going to tell my father? So I, I, I looked to where I was. And I realized that I'm over a cliff out in the middle of nowhere. Anybody driving down that road, even if somebody does come down the road, they don't know I'm down here. They're not going to be able to see me. And it's raining. And I really thought about this, too. They're going to have their windows up because it's raining. So I can yell all I want to and nobody's going to know I'm down here. There's not going to be any help. If I make it, I'm going to have to get out of here myself. The cliff was very steep. There was a light rain happening at, at the time, so all of the leaves and the, the little saplings and everything, everything was wet. And uh, I looked up at the saplings and I thought, well, you know, maybe I can grab a hold of them, you know, pull myself up and maybe put my foot on some of them. Maybe I can actually get up there. And I, I tried to do it, and when I leaned over and something wet and sticky ran over the front of my face. And I went, what in the world is this? And I reached my hand up, wiped it off my face, and it was blood. And I put my hand up to my head and I could feel my scalp. Because my scalp had been cut from ear to ear and flipped backwards. So my hand is on my bare skull. So I grabbed my skin and pulled it back over like a little flap. Then reached back again to grab a sapling. But I was losing a lot of blood. I mean, a lot. Because now I'm covered, covered in it. My pants, my shirt, everything's bloody. And uh, that's when I got really scared. Don't go anywhere. Bill's car has just gone off the edge of a cliff. He's alone. It's raining. He's injured. Find out what or who comes next. Snap Judgment. Back to Snap Judgment. You're listening to the Don't Look Back special. We're featuring stories crafted in the dark of night from our sister show, Spooked. And when last we left, 
who had just crashed his car off the side of a cliff in a remote area. And he was severely injured. He began reaching for saplings on the side of the mountain to try and somehow make his way to safety. Snap judgment. And uh, I tried to pull myself up, and I got up a little bit, and I was able to get one of my feet on a rock to try to push myself up a little further. And I looked up the cliff, and I realized it's almost straight up. Then I reached up to try to grab another sapling. I just... I was... I just didn't have the strength. I didn't feel like I could do it. Up about another 40 feet or so, I felt somebody looking at me up to the right. And there's a guy sitting on the front porch of this house, uh, wearing a fedora hat, slacks and a shirt, sitting on the edge of the porch, and he had one leg propped up. And uh, he was smoking a cigarette. But from where I was, down in that creek bed, uh, the house was, it would have been a tough, a tough walk up to that house. When our eyes met, then he took a cigarette and flipped it on the ground and walked over and got in his car and started backing out that driveway. And when he came to the end of that driveway, I lost sight of him. I I couldn't see that part right there where his car came to the main road. And then all of a sudden, he kind of appears up above me. So he's up on the main road, and I could see him from maybe the shoulders up. And he still had on his fedora. He stuck his head out the window, and he said, Hey, buddy, if you can get up this hill, I'll take you in town to the hospital. Yes, when he, when he made his offer to me, I was still pretty far down that cliff, and it was almost straight up. So that's when I started climbing up the hill. Uh, there were enough of those little tree saplings, about the size of your wrist, they were about that size, that I could grab one, pull myself up, and then put my foot on that one and reach up and grab another one and put and you know it seemed like I had I don't know when I first tried to do it before I noticed him I couldn't do it but when I knew he was up there suddenly I just I don't know it was like I had some kind of superpower I could hoist myself up up that cliff I was surprised that I did it before I knew it I was at the top When I got to the top of the little cliff, 
And I reached up and I grabbed his door handle and opened the door. And I got in. I'm really bloody. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to make a mess. His car was an kind of an older car, uh, probably from the late 40s. It seemed like his entire car, the clothes he was wearing, the house and everything had no color to it. There was there was no red, there was no everything was gray and brown. And he drives maybe a quarter of a mile or so. And he had this jacket kind of wadded up in the in the seat between the two of us. He picked up his jacket and without looking at me, looking straight ahead, handed it over to me and said, you know, buddy, I was in the war and I've seen people hurt like this. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to die. Take my jacket, put it on your head and hold it real tight. took the jacket from him and when he handed it to me I recognized it immediately because my father had one exactly like it his jacket was a military jacket an old waist length jacket with uh, kind of stretchy sleeves and a stretchy bottom and zipped up the front but I just stuck it to the top of my I do remember reaching up and making sure that my little piece of skin was in the correct place there, my scalp. And I, I put the jacket down on the top of my head and uh, held it really firm, and I held it there all the way to town. When we got close to my hometown of Paintsville, he said, which hospital do you want to go to? And I said, well, my mom uh, used to work at the clinic, so let's go to that one. So in about a minute or two, we're at the clinic, which was on Main Street. He pulled up in front and he said, I can't get out of the car. Can you, are you okay? Can you make it? And I said, yeah, I think I'm gonna be okay. I was really weak, but I opened the door, got out, and uh, it was only like three steps that I had to step up. And he drove off. So he turned to the left and drove back in the same direction we had come in. You know, I can't really remember much. I had lost a lot of blood. Uh, when I got into the hospital, Somehow, uh, I got upstairs to where the operating room was. The next thing I realized that I was lying on an operating table and somebody had a kind of a bowl underneath the back of my head and they're sewing me up. They had called my mother. She came there and she was saying, are you OK? And I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. I'm fine. And she said, yeah, they gave you 55 stitches. You've got uh, a cut all the way across the back of your head. 
You know, thank goodness you got here. And who was, who was the guy that brought you? And I said, I have no idea. Uh, after I got out of the hospital, after about three days, I believe, my father said, why don't we go back out there and talk to that guy and talk to him about cleaning his car up because you evidently bled in it a lot. So uh, we drove out to the scene where this happened. We just pulled out right there and he said, you know, right down there's where you went, went over and you could see the place where, where the car slid over and you could see the place in the, in the gully that I had made on the right-hand side. And you could see on the left-hand side of the road where I had gone over the cliff and where I'd hit this rock. And there was glass and stuff still down at the bottom of that little ravine. Uh, when we went out there, we pulled up to that little driveway. We just pulled out right there, and he said, there's no way you could have been in that driveway. That little road that led from the main road, Highway 40, over to his house was grown up with weeds. Weeds like waist high, some of them really big weeds. And there was no way a car could have been parked between that road and, and that house. We're talking about three or four days. There's no way those weeds could have grown up in just three or four days. Now, I know I just had a traumatic accident. You know, I got hit in the head. So maybe I don't remember things correctly, but I distinctly remember his car sitting in the driveway and him walking out and getting in that car. So I asked, uh, you know, my girlfriend's mom and dad and other people that lived around there, who, who is this guy? They said, nobody has lived in that old house for a long time. So whoever he was, he doesn't live there. You know, at the time, yeah, I was only 19 years old. I was just happy to be alive and healing up and back to school, get on with my life. But as time has gone by, I think about this. I, I don't think I'm special or, you know, that somebody saved, saved me for something. But I've always wondered if Maybe there's something I'm supposed to have done or have done. Maybe I've already done it. Or maybe I haven't done it yet. Have you ever heard the story about the little old lady whose car has broken down and a guy comes along and stops and helps her? And she says... Thank you very much. Can I pay you? He goes, no, no, no. You don't owe me anything. Just uh, the chain of love continues. 
she goes in a little restaurant for a bite to eat, and a waitress who's pregnant comes over, and the lady says, I'll, I'll pay it forward, and leaves her a big tip of like hundreds of dollars, and then that night, the waitress is home with her husband and says, a, a lady gave me this big tip, and her husband is the guy, the guy that helped the old lady. I believe in that. Ten years later, almost exactly ten years later, it was Christmas Eve 1971. I was driving home to see my mother in Paintsville, Kentucky, and in the middle of the exit ramp was a car, upside down. And I had heard that sometimes people do block exit ramps, and when you get out to help, you know, they they waylay you. So uh, I parked on up the exit ramp, so I was, I don't know, 50 feet away or something like that. I opened my trunk and got my tire iron, big metal iron out, and I kind of held it behind my leg as I walked down there. Well, I realized pretty soon that uh, this really was a wreck. And the two guys that were standing there evidently had come by next, and they were both drunk. They didn't know what to do. And I I came up, and I said, you know, what's going on? They said, you know, this guy's wrecked, and we can see him in there. And the car started burning a little bit. It was upside down. And uh, when the hot gas hit the muffler, it started to flame. And this thing is going to burn up pretty pretty soon. So uh, one of the guys said, you know, we need to break that window. Well, I happen to have that tire iron in my hand. You know, we, we mashed the window out, broke all the glass out, and one of those guys pulled this guy out of his car. And one of his Christmas gifts, <laughs> one gift out of his car, and he had it full. I mean, he was surrounded by, li- and these were all wrapped packages with ribbons, uh, and he, they were all around him. He must have had the whole back of that car full of gifts for his family. When the car caught on fire, they all burned up, burst into flame. And we gave him the one gift that we've been able to save out of the car. Uh, In the meantime, they called the local fire department. They were putting out the fire, and I drove on home to to see Mother. But I just wondered, maybe that was it. It happened almost exactly ten years later. Or maybe it hasn't happened yet.
Let this be a reminder to you. Always take extra care when rounding those tight curves. You never know who's going to be nearby watching over you. A big thank you to Bill Love for sharing your story with the Spooked. The original score for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Annie Nguyen. after the break we're back on the road headed to rural montana and a snowstorm is coming stay tuned Judgment, you're listening to the Don't Look Back special. My name is Ben Washington, and we're sharing stories from our Supernatural Sister show, Spooked. Now, I've heard some people driving, listening to Spooked, they get so engaged they forget to make their turn. I understand. But what if you really did get lost? Really lost? Who come to save you? Our next story comes to us from the wilds of rural Montana. Snap Judgment. I was a EMT, which is the emergency medical technician in Dillon, Montana. This story takes place on New Year's Eve, 1987. I was having dinner with my boyfriend at that time. His name was Hank. And uh, we were having New Year's Eve dinner. I was on call 24-7, and so I just wore a pager all the time. And I got a page, and the page said, man down in alley. And so I immediately responded, and I said I had to go on this call. So I got to the young man. He was about 14 years old, and he was having seizures. The boy had freckles. He was a red-headed, green-eyed boy. So we were trying to contain him enough to protect him. But he was 14. He was a pretty good-sized boy. And it took a lot of the police, and these guys are big guys, to control his bodies enough that we could strap him down. We transport him to the hospital, which was about three minutes away. And they immediately did uh, blood tests, and they came back and told us that uh, there was cocaine in his system. And they said there must have been something else in there, laced it with something, and that they were going to keep him, you know, put him in ICU right away. 
And actually, as I'm thinking about this, I remember with that boy making eye contact with him at one time. And uh, he knew he wasn't going to be okay. He knew. And yet we went for it anyway. We did everything to save that boy's life. Even though his body was still there, there was something missing. He wasn't dead. His body was alive, but his soul had already moved on. So I'm going to ask you just to imagine that it was New Year's Eve in your life, and you had just seen a young boy in grandma's seizures, and then you find out that the reason this boy is so seriously ill is because he got some cocaine that was laced with something. Would you get mad? Especially if you knew that the man that possibly brought in the drugs was your boyfriend. When I went home, I just couldn't sleep because I knew that Hank was bringing in drugs. And I, I, it was just so upsetting to me that perhaps that boy got one of his drugs. I, I went to bed for a little bit. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I, start, I got in my car, and that's one way that I can calm my little spirit is by going into nature, going for a drive. It's cold, it's dark, and in Montana, these old roads, I mean, they're just two-lane highways, and I just headed to where I knew where it was always calming for me, which was Yellowstone Park, which was about three hours away. So it was a nice little drive. I probably hit there maybe 5.30 in the morning or something. It was still dark, and, and I remember turning off and then I just went, wow, this road doesn't seem like the same place that I usually go. It was cold. It was very cold, and there was probably about two and a half, three feet of snow. I think the biggest thing I was thinking was I knew that they were bringing those drugs in, and it, it made me very mad, and... So my mind was really playing tapes of, if I did this, I could do this. If I did that, I could do this. I realized I was lost uh, probably about an hour up the road. And it was just, the wind was shaking the car when I was driving. It was just blowing so hard, this blizzard. And it was like I knew I couldn't try and turn around because I would get stuck. And then I went, man, this is not good. Um, as I'm driving, the snow is literally just coming over the car. It was so deep, I was pushing through it, and it was coming over the top of the car. And I reached down into my jockey box to see if I had any food, and I had a half a piece of gum. And I didn't have any water. I didn't have any other food. I still had about a half a tank of gas or so, and, and I decided that if I would stop and then 
just turn the engine off until I, you know, got really cold, and then I would start it up. I probably had enough gas for about six hours. I don't even know where I am, and there is so much snow, and the blizzard is happening. If this continues, my car will be completely covered. They won't find me. And I went, this is it. This is where I'm going to... This is where I'm going to die. And I just kept thinking about my daughter, Brandy. And then I heard a truck come up behind me. And um, this guy pulls up. He's got this about, I think it was about a 60 Ford pickup. Uh, Blue and white. He had a cowboy hat on. He's got the guns in the back. I would say he was probably in his 50s. He, he was really tall, he had a brown hat, and his hair was kind of that dirty, blondy brown. It was all straggling, he had a beard and, and uh, blue jeans, and his face was full of wrinkles. And he just said, what in the hell are you doing out here? And started yelling at me, and, and I'm like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing out here. I think I told him, I think I'm lost. And, and he, he just kept asking me, who are you? Who are you? And I was trying to tell him who I was, but he wouldn't listen to me. He just kept on, who are you? Who are, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I really started getting scared because he was getting pretty loud. You know, and the rifles are in the truck. And he looked at my plates. He says, you're from Montana. I said, yeah. And he says, well, do you even know where you are? And I said, I have no clue. And he said, well, you're in Idaho. And he said, I'll, I'll follow you, and I'm going to show you how to get out of here. And <laughs> so I got my car and I started driving, and there's still no road. And he was so close to me that I could, I could see him. He had green eyes. They were emerald green eyes. And he was right on my tail. And then he starts honking his horn, just laying on his horn, so I stop. And then he walks up to my car, and he, and he says, Okay, down there, you're gonna, do you see the telephone post? And I could see him in the distance. And he says, just follow the fence line. And you could see a fence line down there. And he says, it'll get you to that town. And then he says, there's a gas station down there. Go to the house and lock on the door in the back of the gas station, and they'll help you. And I got in the car, and I'm driving, and he's right on my butt again. I was watching where I was going, but also watching him. And then he just vanished, just disappeared. And I... I thought, well, he must have taken a road or went off the road, you know, off somewhere. And so I stopped and I got out and and then I backed up a little bit because it was like, where could have he gone? He just disappeared. There was no sign. And then I looked down and there was only one set of tracks. And they were my car tracks. There was no other car tracks. There were no truck tracks. 
This is weird. Like, how could that have happened? Because I know he was there. I never touched him, and he never touched me, but I could smell his breath. I, you know, I could feel the heat coming off his body. He was so close to me. For him just to vanish like that, it was like, what could have that been? I got chicken skin, you know, like, I, I, even though he was really angry, that man was really angry at me, there was a genuine caring about me. I remember looking into his eyes and wondering, where, where did he come from? And then I remembered that boy. And he had the same kind of eyes. They were green, although the little boy's eyes were all bloodshot and stuff. It was like the same eyes. Same color eyes, that that emerald green. Oh my God, it was the spirit of that boy. And I know that's who came. I got back in my car after checking out the car track thing and um, headed headed towards the telephone post. And I got to a little town called Dubois, and I stopped and went to the house, knocked on the door. They gave me some gas, and then I headed back to my brother's house where they were having a New Year's Day party. Thank you, thank you, Valerie, for sharing your story. Valerie's story comes to us from the book Trucker Ghost Stories. It's edited by Annie Wilder. Original score was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Eliza Smith. If you need more Spook, the new season of Spook is streaming right now, rolling out new episodes through spring of 2022. You can hear the newest episodes by subscribing to the Luminary channel on Apple Podcasts or directly on Luminary. That's luminary.link slash spooked. Luminary.link slash spooked. Spook was created by the team that walks under the light of the full moon. Except, of course, from Mark Ristich. We can't get those roller skates off him. There's Anna Sussman, Eliza Smith, Chris Hambrick, Amy Nguyen, Lauren Newsom, Leon Morimoto, Davey Kim, Renzo Gorio, Taylor Cott, Marissa Dodge, Zoe Ferrigno, Tiffany DeLiza, Ann Ford, Doug Stewart, Isaiah Sims. The Spook theme song is by Pat Messina Miller. My name is from Washington. 
Know that people tend to hide the things most dear to them in the darkness, in the underground, in the shadow. The first mistake is to fail to consider who you are hiding your secrets from. As for me, everything I hold dear, I like to keep it close. And I never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever turn out the light.